Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today is Tom Palmer. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and executive vice president for international programs at the Atlas Network. Welcome back to the show, Tom. Thanks so much. What is populism? Well, it's a political movement, uh, a tendency that has been uh, uh, disrupting political systems all around the planet recently. And it has a number of interesting features, uh, things that we can find that are common. And the first, there, there are four, but the first is the idea that there's the true people who are some, somehow under attack. Uh, by an elite, by the 1%, by some minority group or religious or ethnic group or whoever it happens to be. That's an empty signifier. You can put anything into that position. But the Populist Party is the only true representative of the true people. But within the population, it's articulated as the people versus the enemies of the people. And that language is common, the enemies of the people. A uh, second feature that's commonly associated with it is that the people have one will because they are one people, the true people, and there is one will of the people. And that will is concentrated in a leader, one person who says, I am your voice, I speak for you. And in the case of Hugo Chavez, he even says, Chavez is not me, Chavez is a people. Uh, the third element, then, is a disdain for deliberative processes in political decision-making, the old idea of discussion and debate and put everything on the table and have a robust conversation. No, what we need instead is action, action for the sake of action. And then finally, uh, and this is uh, follows on these others, a focus on short-termism in policy. So you tend to find very interventionist economic policies, wage controls, price controls, uh, uh, inflationism, uh, all kinds of short-term policies that have detrimental long-term consequences. And on all of those areas, libertarian ideas are robustly at variance with populism. We see the world as variegated and complex with multiple interests and orientations and ways of living and so on that need to be able to coexist. We don't like uh, leadership, dictatorship uh, principles. And we do believe in conversation and discussion before embarking on some kind of collective activity. And then finally, uh, classical liberals or libertarians have always been known as the ones who think about the long-term consequences, namely, what's going to happen when you do this, not just tomorrow or the next week, but over the long term? What incentives you have you put in place? So in all of those four characteristics, there's a real clash between libertarianism and this uh, global populist movement. And it's, it seems I didn't hear right wing or left wing in that. It can be either right wing oh, or left wing. Oh, it comes in any flavor. Uh, it, it's like all kinds of poisons, in my opinion. You could flavor it chocolate or vanilla. It's still uh, deadly to you. And so you do have right-wing populisms and left-wing populisms. And what's interesting is that in many cases, they make common cause against the classical liberal uh, consensus, if you will, that has been rising since the Second World War. So in a number of countries, there have been uh, far-right and far-left uh, unity governments. Uh, think about Greece with the independent Greeks, which is a sort of neo-fascist uh, populist party in Greece, and the Syriza, the coalition of the radical left, which is a populist uh, far-left party. And those two had formed a government up until the most recent elections, who had a more centrist, uh, somewhat classical liberal-tinged 
uh, government replaced them. But uh, it is common to find these far left and far right views uh, in alliance. One thing that they hate more than each other is the idea of a peaceful society that is pluralistic and tolerant. They they simply can't stand that. And so although at some point they will want to destroy each other, first they want to destroy the people who believe it's possible to live together. I wonder if you could speak a bit more about the distinction between democracy and populism because as a lot of these characteristics that you – laid out at the beginning in your definition of populism. So believing that there is a people who are opposed to some extent by a certain cadre of elites or there's other people kind of corrupting the direction we ought to be going. We see that in common democratic rhetoric all the time. Like campaign finance law is all about like the some these a handful of oligarchs are getting in the way of the people's voice. And the the leader we you know, every time there's a presidential election in the United States, it's you know I speak for you and I will represent your voice in Washington, which is not quite the same thing as like I'm you or I'm the embodiment of you, but it's similar. Um, so, what's is there a is there a clear distinction between democracy and populism, or does is it is it a fuzzier line between the two? Well, I think it's kind of fuzzy. For one thing, democracy is one of those essentially contested terms. Uh, very few people say they're just against it. They all just have different conceptions of what it means. But if you think about the dem democracy that was articulated in the American founding, it's not just a pure majoritarian system. This is obvious to anyone who would just read through the text of the Constitution. It's full of checks and balances. It's full of the ideas of deliberation and discussion and let's wait, let's see how it's going to work. The Senate was set up very deliberately not to be swept one way or another because you have these six-year terms and then every two years, one-third of them are up. And that means that two-thirds of them are not and they can uh, defeat idiotic, crazy, popular ideas that are the transient uh, enthusiasms or fads of the moment. Uh, what it has, though, is a democratic component. It's not a hereditary system. It's nothing you're born into. There's no uh, aristocracy who are born to power. It is a democratic input into a constitutional republic which seeks to be governed by the law rather than by will. And what populism does is it wants to replace the idea of law with the idea of will, that these are things imposed and they're imposed in the name of the people. The other element that's important is that even in standard democratic rhetoric, you don't articulate there's a group that are the unpeople, the enemies of the people. They may be political foes in election. You have very robustly different views on all kinds of issues and you fight and so on. But you don't at the end of the day say, okay, now we have to kill them. Now it's time to eliminate them. They're the enemies of the people. But populism tends very much in that direction to articulate that there's some group that is the unpeople. Is populism always or at least typically along racial lines? Like when we're talking about the people, are we talking about a certain ethnicity? Oh, it doesn't have to be, although that's a common and obvious formulation. But the idea of the 1%, for example, this is not articulated in in racial terms. Uh, I would say one group that usually takes it on the chin in populism is Jews and populations or countries that have Jewish populations. They're 
commonly identified as the enemy because the articulation, the, the common theme of anti-Semitism is they are among us but not of us, that somehow they're different and therefore uh, the enemy. But it doesn't have to be anti-Semitic. It doesn't have to be racist. It can be some other enemy. So die Lügenpresse or the lying media as we hear in the United States, uh, that's just a translation from a, a German term of abuse that... that uh, uh, what led to the establishment of dictatorship. We're not going to allow people to counter the voice of the people. So it doesn't have to be racially oriented, but that's a pretty easy way to articulate a populist vision. What's most interesting is the new populism that's emerged lately. And here I think of Ernesto Laclau in his turgid and boring and virtually unreadable book on populist reason. Uh, his view is that it's the leader who, are, who formulates the unity of the movement and can choose the enemy, the constitution of the enemy at will, so as to constitute a winning group within a democratic context. And once you have that vote, you get the old principle of tyranny, one man, one vote, one time. Now, for... We've used the word populist for – I feel like in my lifetime, it was most – until recently, it was most used to describe basically every South American government at one time or another. Um, and, but it hasn't been used much in my lifetime to describe any American political movement that was actually existent, contemporary. Um, do you think that's accurate? I mean, I'm not saying it only exists in South America. It exists other places. But have we not seen it before here? Well, this, this may reflect a, a, an age difference, but – uh, for me, uh, growing up, the idea of populism was articulated with the American People's Party, the Populist Party, which was a, a big deal in the 1890s when I was young. And, uh, <laughs> just, yeah, I know uh, that there are parties who have – there are other third parties who are called the Populist Parties, but well, they that, that's actually the way deal. that the term entered into contemporary discourse. So it, it was a very important formative uh, movement against elites. But I think it was uh, uh, not the same kind of populism, if you want to put it that way, as what we have been experiencing today. It was not so obviously anti-pluralist. This is the key that uh, uh, Jan Werner Müller and other political scientists have focused on, that the populism we're experiencing is explicitly an openly anti-pluralist. That is to say, the one people have one will. They have one interest. They are not a multitude of different interests that might be competing within a democratic or constitutional legal system. And so I think that is the, the, what colors it. I think you're thinking a little bit more, uh, Trevor, about the kind of uh, uh, military governments that uh, plagued much of Latin America. But I wouldn't characterize those typically as populist. They were military governments with all the usual characteristics you find among them. Uh, there were certainly some, like the PRI in Mexico, the Party of the Institutionalized Revolution, it's such an interesting uh, name, that articulated that. But over a long period of time, they just became the establishment. Uh, they were the people who had the money and the power and the uh, connections. That was the point of being the institutionalized revolution. It was the revolution in power. Now, it's, of course, always the case that these movements, when they present themselves as insurgencies, uh, they quickly move into takeover power. And once they're in power, just as George Orwell uh, explained so elegantly in Animal Farm, uh, they become 
the new masters, and they just take the positions of the old ones, but with a difference. They have typically acted to destroy every institution of countervailing power and authority. Every check and balance has been eliminated. So Venezuela is such a classic case here where they have destroyed the independence of the judiciary, the independence of the elected authorities, the independence of mayors. They've crushed uh, the free media. Uh, they've just pulverized the society. And in a fairly short period of time, uh, we've seen just a complete social meltdown. They have really sped up the process of cronyization, concentration of wealth in the hands of these oligarchs, as they're called, the Bolivaran uh, movement. Uh, so the oligarchs have most of the wealth in the country now, and they've impoverished it. And this is a standard pattern. When movements of this sort do get into power, if they are not quickly checked, if they have enough time to eliminate all of the countervailing institutions, that is exactly what they do. And once you do, we find out they're just as venal, uh, just as selfish and greedy as whatever elite that they claim to have uh, dispossessed. Why is opposition to another so central to this. So in the article that we have on libertarianism.org that you wrote about the rise of authoritarian populism, you you talk about Carl Schmitt who defined politics as kind of opposition to an enemy. Um, but, but if we have a group identity, that group identity presumably can exist without opposition to other things. We have like a positive identity that we can rally around versus a like, well, we're not those guys. So is is that oppositional thing necessary to populism? And if it is, why? Why don't we see populism around positive identities? Well, one of the reasons is, what, again, what Laclau, who is a, a tedious read because he was one of these academics who covered up his, uh, his ideas with uh, virtually impenetrable prose and a lot of nonsense from Jacques Lacan and <laughs> Saussure and so on. Uh, but he identifies the affective dimension. What he means by that is the emotional investment in politics. And the one that moves people uh, much more strongly than anything else is hatred, rage, anger, resentment. So if you want to mobilize a movement that's going to be focused on a leader, hatred, rage, anger, and resentment, they really feel, fit the bill. But let's get along. Can't we love each other? Look at the positive things about our country and our identity. Those are pretty weak tea in comparison. So uh, this effective dimension or emotional investment that Laclau and his wife, Chantal Mouffe, who's a big Schmidt scholar, reviving the ideas of the, the important uh, Nazi philosophers, Carl Schmidt, uh, which I should also add permeates Laclau's thinking as well. He just doesn't quote him. Requires a negativity, a hatred of the enemy. And that is what motivates people to then invest so much emotional energy in following the leader and crushing the enemy. Given the importance of the leader and the investment in the leader, do populist governments have a problem with transitions? Like when the leader goes from the scene, do they tend to collapse or can this investment be transferred on to the next person in line? Well, that's a, it's a very deep question and we have seen various kinds of populist movements that are swept over France, for example. And once the, the powerful leader expires, they dissipate pretty quickly. So uh, that's 
the long-term problem of investing all of this emotional energy in a leader that they're uh, not immortal. They do, of course, attempt to extend their term of office indefinitely, which is why you found, uh, like in the case of Ecuador with Correa, uh, get rid of the limits on uh, the presidential term. Fortunately, he failed in that because enough of his own party, led by uh, uh, Moreno, uh, uh, turned against him and said, we do not want to go down the Venezuelan road. And so Ecuador, I think, was was saved from a disaster. But they do want to get rid of all term limits so that the leader can continue in power uh, from their perspective forever. We understand that means as long as he lives. But these people typically don't think very much after that period. They're going to be dead, so what do they care? What happens to the rest of the society if it, if it falls into civil war or if it goes into something else? Well, they'll be dead. What do they care? There have been a lot of, well, as your essay points out, we're in a trend, we're in a disturbing global trend of a rise of authoritarian populism. But there's also been a lot of books written that I get I get as a, as a book review editor for the Cato Journal. What happened to liberalism? Liberalism, you know, autopsy of an idea, liberalism's dead, that kind of thing. Is there a, a blowback element of this? Do you buy this idea that, that there's sort of maybe a sinusoidal thing that we have Fukuyama say – Liberal democracy is the end of history and nothing will ever change. But there's something in the human heart or at least some humans who don't like pluralism to the point that, that the more pluralism they get, the more people they see around them who are different, speaking different languages, the more they'll retrench and then call for someone to make the nation great again, especially in the term of the nation, the people. Uh, it's a very small thing because I was at a conference recently with Fukuyama and he would take – exception to your, your characterization of his view, but we'll just set that aside. Um, I, I don't think it's the case that liberalism inevitably generates some kind of a blowback. Uh, some people have argued that. They've argued about the hollowing out, so Patrick Deneen's book, which I found uh, pretty insipid. Uh, I should mention one thing. Anytime someone writes, the Greeks believed, I am tempted to close the book because, well, there are a lot of them. And it turns out, what what they mean by that is one or two Greeks believe that, Aristotle and or Plato. Uh, so I don't think there's a collapse of liberalism. I do think that we've been seeing trends on the global stage, however, that have really set up uh, this this movement. The financial crisis, which was blamed on capitalism, led to a crisis of confidence. Now, what's remarkable is you had a couple of years of negative economic performance in a number of economies, not all, but in a number, uh, which then recovered. So it's a little tiny blip in a general upward trend. But nonetheless, I think that that was seized on by many people as a sign that something had failed. We can look at it and say, look, you had so many interventions in the financial markets, the Basel Accords that were intended to make a global financial market stable actually made them less stable, on and on and on. But that's the psychological impact that it had was to shake in somehow confidence that there would be an, uh, a better future coming along because of this uh, uh, short-term uh, uh, downward blip. The second, however, and I think this is very important, has been an acceleration of movement of peoples around the world. And so I think that the rise of nativism uh, is an experience of people seeing so much variety around them that they were not accustomed to. This is something I think we need to focus on understanding better. 
So the population of the United States that's foreign-born has reached another peak. The previous one was in the 1920s. What happened in the 1920s? The rebirth of the KKK. And I don't think that was accidental. The KKK was, of course, a movement against uh, uh, African-American people to keep them down, but it was also against foreigners, Catholics. against Catholics especially, absolutely. So it was very much an anti-foreigner uh, identitarian movement. It, of course, fortunately... Uh, declined, but now various versions of that, the updated form in which they don't wear white robes, but instead they're on the internet, uh, has arisen. And then similarly in Europe, uh, and I think one of the big triggering events, of course, was the somewhat uh, un-German, unprepared blurting out by Mrs. Merkel, wir schaffen das, we can do it, to let in uh, refugees and to do so in a very haphazard and chaotic way. They just, she didn't even bother to consult with all the countries they had to walk across. So you had these mass caravans of desperate people fleeing a, a terrible war. That generated this sense of being under siege and invaded. And I think this is a major trigger. So to understand that, I think that the work of Karen Stenner, who is a political psychologist, uh, extraordinarily lucid writer, very interesting, she identifies triggers for what she calls authoritarian groupiness. And I take groupiness to be essentially the uh, psychological and, and affective or emotional uh, characteristic of populism. And those are normative threats, uh, threats to the persistence of the order that you have come to see as being stable as part of the normal world. Those things can change and people can accommodate them. But when they're suddenly seen as very rapid uh, and dramatic, many people have a sense of being displaced. And the response, of course, is to pull together and to say, we're us against them. So foreigners or immigrants are a very common target as the enemy. And, of course, all of the elites who bring them in, and we hear all the anti-Semitic horrors that uh, the Jews have uh, tried to bring in all these Muslims into Europe and Mexicans into America so they have a cheap labor force to displace the white people. All this uh, uh, bilge that you see on the Internet, if you bother to dive into it, uh, is connected to this experience of of this invasion. And it's a perfect setting for the emergence of anti-libertarian collectivist ideologies. What does that then mean for pushing back against it or addressing it? So you – a lot of the times, a lot of populism gets blamed. A lot of people think it has to do with economic anxiety and you know, so um, – and you, you tend to reject largely that thesis. But but let's – if we look at it from the economic anxiety, we can say like, well, yes, there's these people. There's there's categories of people. There's demographics where the jobs that they had have dried up due to trade and innovation and so on. And we can see that they are like – that that actually has harmed them. Like they are legitimately hurting and we should feel for them. Um, and, and we can say – then we can make the argument to them, right, that like – they're maybe misdiagnosing the causes, that embracing these populist leaders isn't actually going to bring those jobs back, isn't actually going to help them. But you can kind of argue on a set of shared terms, which is that people ought to have – it's good if people have meaningful work that they can support themselves on. But, but if the story that you're telling is the case and that what they're fundamentally objecting to and what's causing them to rally behind populist leaders is, I don't like that other people have free movement. Um, I don't like that 
my group, which was for historical reasons privileged, is now less privileged not because I've been torn down but because we now have more respect for women than we did. We now have more respect for minorities. We have more respect for foreigners. We have more respect for other religious groups, for gays and so on. Um, and that's what's really upset them. That seems like something it's much harder to find common ground on. That they seem that their fundamental objection seems to be that other people have more opportunities and are leading better lives, and that pisses me off. And so, how do you then like talk to them or debate them or or begin a conversation with them if that's the crux of it? If what they fundamentally want is like the world to not be as good for these other people as it could be. Well, those are hard questions, and as I indicated in the piece I did for Reason Magazine, you have to go look at the data on this. There's not a theoretical answer per se to these kinds of, of factual questions. I do think that the, the purely economic explanation is not very compelling, and a couple of reasons. One is Poland is an example. They did not suffer from the economic crisis. They've had pretty robust economic growth rates, and they've been taken over by a very um, uh, extreme uh, populist uh, movement, the Law and Justice Party uh, that's led by Kaczynski. So there are a number of outliers like that. The other thing is, and here this is a, an issue that's highly contested, but I'd be willing to argue the stats with people. I don't think that there has been an actual decline in living standards. Uh, people say, oh, wages have been flat or declining. This is just not the case. And many attempts to measure uh, these things focus on what deflator is used, uh, on the price indices and so on. But when you actually look at consumption, the measurable consumption that people in the uh, income groups, lower income groups, or below the median income, they're all greater than they were in the past. So uh, wealth and consumption are rising. What I think we should focus on is something that's more difficult for classical liberals to focus on, or we haven't done it in the past, and that is relative standing, falling relative position. So it's been common for Free market-oriented people, classical liberals say, look, a rising tide lifts all boats, as John Kennedy said. Uh, this is good. Everyone's getting better off. Some get better off at faster rates. So who who complains? Even John Rawls said, well, if it's to the advantage of the least advantaged group, how could you complain about an inequality? But it turns out that we're, as social primates, not only concerned about how well I do compared to how well I did in the past, but how well I'm doing compared to you. And if I see newcomers uh, coming in and moving up rapidly or groups that were unknown of in the past seeming to get various preferences, it can generate a very strong resentment. One of the other things that is quite striking that I think is correlative to this in the United States is the decline in labor mobility. This is a kind of a puzzle. Why is it that since these stats have been held, labor mobility in the United States is, a, is at a low uh, in the past, people would move if there wasn't a job where you were and there was a new industry or job opening up in California or New York or wherever it was, people moved there. And now they don't. That could be a combination of economic policy, licensing laws that make it very difficult. They're at an all-time peak to take your, your qualifications across the borders, all kinds of other unemployment compensation. So and that's an empirical question I think deserves a lot more research. But it's not the case that somehow people lack the opportunity. So for some reason, they're not taking advantage of it. But they do resent this infusion 
uh, in the U.S., I call them the M&Ms, uh, Mexicans and Muslims, that have been targeted by President Trump as uh, the invaders into our society. And it's very easy to load all of your problems onto them. So I'm not convinced that the economic distress per se is the problem. Uh, some people on the left, like John Judas, have argued this. I didn't find it very convincing. But I do think the loss of relative position seems to be a major driver. Let, you know, let me just mention very quickly, if somebody rises in a relative ranking, someone has to fall. That's not true in absolute well-being. And the groups that have fallen, think about uh, white males who don't have uh, college uh, schooling in the United States tend to be the ones most drawn to populism. But they're the ones who saw their relative social status fall most dramatically, even though their absolute standard of well-being continued to improve. But I guess then if that's what's motivating it, how do we – not necessarily us as libertarians but even like – I, the the standard liberal institutions that have governed this country for quite a long time, how did they respond? Because if it's so, if it's like you've lost your job because the factory went to Mexico, we have things like trade adjustment insurance, right? Which we can argue about whether that works or not, but that's like we can kind of the government can grant you something that can potentially get you to where you want to be. But if your concern is my status is not as relatively high compared to women as it used to be, what do you offer someone like that? Because we can't offer them like, well, we'll decrease the status of women a little bit. No, of course not. Um, first of on the question of trade adjustment assistance, I'm not a fan of those things. I don't think that they work very well. Sure, but Letting, they're conceptually the kind of thing. I understand. That, well, the, the better one is to let new industries and firms grow. Uh, rather than regulating them to death. This is one of the areas where I think that the current administration in the United States has achieved uh, some positive successes, which is putting the brakes on the growth of the regulatory state. They haven't done much rollback, but they have stopped a rapid acceleration. And I think that's been a very, very good thing. I'd like to see more of that to create even more hope and opportunity for people to create something better for themselves. I'd like to see getting rid of licensing laws that create so many guilds that people are excluded from. And in particular, people who don't have college degrees, uh, we have created a system in the United States of privileging college and then cementing all these guilds that makes it very hard for someone to advance uh, in that context. Uh, finally, though, I do think that one element that our political systems have failed to address is one that I alluded to about Germany and Mrs. Merkel's blurting out, oh, we'll deal with that issue. When people perceive immigration as disorderly, they perceive it as an invasion. And I think, uh, although I'm generally skeptical of conspiracy thinking, uh, that there has been little effort to make U.S. immigration procedures orderly. The more chaos at the border, the more the populace thrive because they 
They use this as an issue. We could, in fact, make immigration procedures far more orderly, far more law-governed, allow people to get visas at U.S. consulates and embassies in other countries, to get work permits, to have a temporary work program or a worker visa program, guest worker, whatever you want to call it, where people would come, work, do things where they create value for the society as well as for themselves, and then go back home. And I think that would dissipate a great deal of this resentment. That's a policy decision that's pretty low-hanging fruit, but I don't think many people want to go for it. You mentioned collectivism, and we have this emerging or already here. It's not even just Donald Trump, but like, say, Tucker Carlson with this right-wing collectivism that itself is kind of bizarre, um, and Josh Hawley. So we have people who are is, – is it a form of populism, I guess, is my question, when you have – you know Tucker Carlson playing with the idea of you know banning smartphones to teenagers, or or Josh Hawley regulating smartphones, in this kind of idea that they've completely jettisoned anything that was ever libertarian about what they believed, and said we need to make people better, people better at actualizing themselves into, into moral and, and free I, individuals. I wouldn't characterize those as particularly populist ideas. They're, they're elitist, if anything. Um, but I do think that the new nationalism that has been articulated, which is runs parallel. You often find these different ideas entwined in various ways. That's not very surprising. Uh, nationalism and what they're calling now national conservatism is very much allied to populism. And so Yoram Hazoni, whose book on uh, the virtues of nationalism was an interesting read. I think it was a tissue of historical fabrication and just really, really bad history, just Asserts things, ex cathedra, this is the foundation of order, this, that, and the other. There's virtually no history in the book, and what there is is, is uh, laughable. But he comes from Israel to the U.S. and says, you all should be nationalists and national conservatism and your identity. There's a subtext, by the way, that's a little bit ugly about that, which is that he is effectively arguing as America is a country that is not a home for Jews. And I really found that irritating. Uh, as someone who wants to live in a pluralistic society where people are not singled out, that there's an ethnic or religious identity to the country. And effectively, his message is, this is not a country for Jews. You have your own Anglo-Saxon, blah, blah, blah heritage. Uh, so he wants a global international movement of nationalisms. And of course, nationalism and populism can go together very well because, as you mentioned earlier, the ethnic identity is a very powerful uh, message of who we are. We are the Germans, the French, whatever it happens to be. That's us. And those others, they're just not us. They speak a different language or have a different religion, whatever it happens to be. So I do think that national conservatism is very much allied with populism, although you can find some elements of it that are different. I mentioned one other thing. It's very different from traditional conservatism, especially of the sort that uh, traces its lineage to Edmund Burke, because they flatten out uh, social heter heterogeneity. Everyone is immersed into the mass of the nation. And this is a common feature of nationalism as well. Nationalism smashes and destroys older uh, social orders and institutions, some of which we might consider odious in any case, 
some not, but all of them are to be smashed to create a homogenized nation in which all of us see eye to eye equally as members of the nation and, of course, led by some great uh, ruler or leader. Uh, so national conservatism and populism seem to have uh, something in common. The last element is they're all in opposition to each other because French nationalists and G German nationalists uh, don't like each other. Hungarian nationalists and Slovak nationalists hate each other. So the idea of a, an international <laughs> of nationalist or populist movements means they're all united to destroy liberal society, a society of coexistence and toleration and pluralism and peace. And once they do that, they will turn on each other. Historically, populist revolutions have not turned out all that well. Like we, we look – so look at Venezuela right now. Things aren't going all that well. Um, and the – if it's – if the motivation behind the populist revolution in the beginning is a group of people who call themselves the people have a set of grievances and think that investing a great deal of power in this guy and identity in this guy will address those grievances. Has that ever worked? Like are there instances of populist revolutions that turned out okay for the people who called for them in the first place? Um, or where their their grievances actually got addressed, not that we necessarily want them to be, but like where it's actually happened or have they always turned out as catastrophes for not just the people who the anger is directed at, but for the people directing the anger to begin with? Well, that's kind of hard to range over all of human history uh, in, in one question. I do think in general that those movements that denigrate democratic or republican deliberation, which is a common feature of populism. Enough talk. The hour of action has arrived, as Steve Bannon wrote for Donald Trump in his inaugural address. The hour of action has arrived. Enough empty talk. Uh, those don't end well. Because once you have eliminated the procedures of deliberation and consultation uh, and put everything into action, that you have to do something decisively, uh, you end up with a system that is no longer connected to the information feedback that can correct errors. And so I think that there's a general tendency for that not to end well. Is there a relationship on some of these with the sort of perpetual crisis mode or the there's a looming crisis? As you said, we have to act now. That is often true of other political times. I mean, we have Bob Higgs and Crisis and Leviathan, and we know that that's when things often happen. But I, I see coming from some people like – so in the Trump world, we had Flight 93 election. We had this is the last best hope we can actually save – I don't know, they wouldn't call it liberalism, but it was Western democracy or something like this. And then we have a crisis coming from the left, a few of them, but one of them is the Green New Deal, for example, the crisis of climate change. Maybe these are not commensurate type of things, but um, do those help fuel, like, fuel populist movements too? I don't think that those are a necessary ingredient. I mean, there's always popping up in various democratic issues. There are crisis moments or important issues that, that galvanize the country or may polarize it in various ways. What's striking in this case is not that we have an issue that we have to address. I mean, think about uh, a war where you're threatened with invasion. Of course, that generates a pulling together uh, and so on. But the idea that the people on the other side are the enemy, 
are not the common people that we want to to help by solving the problem, whether it's global warming or whatever it happens to be. But somehow we have to be at war with the enemy. And the enemy is internal to our society. As Laclau mentions again, we have to articulate an internal frontier within the population between the people and the enemy of the people. And that uh, does not end well uh, for liberal pluralistic societies. Someone is targeted for annihilation in the extreme case or constant persecution in less extreme cases. And so I, I don't think that it's just crises which pop up various times. A crisis is an opportunity for for uh, politicians to seize power, and we've seen that over and over again. That's That's a common feature of even normal democratic societies. But when you say we're fighting against the enemy, and that's the characteristic. Uh, that means that you're going to effectively eliminate the voice of the enemy uh, from political discourse. And that means you've short-circuited the entire information system that can correct errors. Well, it, that does seem more like the Flight 93 type of crisis. I'm putting that in scare quotes because that did sort of identify the enemy as being the modern Democrat. Like they're the ones who are going to destroy life as opposed to something like global warming, which is – a, a you know, a function of nature, not a function of cultural change or something like this. But you do see a desire to shut down, say, people who deny global warming in various ways and a desire to shut down both sides of, the, of speech. Yes, the that's right. We've seen all of these deplatforming movements of various kinds and people demanding others not be allowed to speak, not be allowed to disagree. They're demonized. I'm very concerned about the polarization in European and uh, American societies in which the people who disagree with me are my enemies and I shouldn't allow them to speak because all they're doing is spilling lies. They're just lying to you. So shut them up, deplatform them, ban them, and so on. That is not a healthy development. And I think that the idea, which is really at the root of uh, the best formulation of democracy that was articulated by Cleisthenes in uh, Athens, that we can have deliberation. And if you lose the vote, you don't get punished <laughs> for having lost. Uh, that's really central. The idea of the loyal opposition, that is to say that once you have been in power and you lost power, you don't start blowing up train stations and murdering people. You say, now we're the opposition because we're loyal to the Constitution. And we will oppose you or challenge you and ask hard questions and investigate you. Uh, and then if you lose power, we won't kill you. We're going to go into power and you'll be the loyal opposition. That's a really important institution. And it's actually underappreciated as a historical achievement, the idea of the loyal opposition. And I think that the very idea is under attack. When the president refers to the other party as guilty of treason, treason, because they didn't applaud loudly enough. I mean, this is just – that really shocked me. Uh, to, to have the other side accused of treason and constantly being called traitors because they're not applauding the president when he gives uh, some speech. This is, is incompatible with the persistence of a constitutional order. Does that mean, looking at our current environment, that has the Republican Party become a populist party? More so, or at least maybe more so, or both sides, or well, I I would have to say both parties have been moving in that direction uh, very robustly, and one feeds the other. 
That's one of the points about these things. When one side says, you're the enemy, then the other side is going to say, no, you're the enemy. We're both the true people. And so I do think that's a very disturbing uh, trend. And the Republican Party that I was accustomed to seeing as part of the political landscape, uh, I think is it's dying or it's at least very sick because of this notion that it's all focused in one man. And this recent decision to eliminate the party primaries <laughs> was an example of that. It's just going to be a re-coronation of the, the leader uh, of the party. And then same thing on the Democratic side, the uh, attacks on Republicans as just bad people. And finally, I'll mention one of these disturbing things that goes along with it in the, I think it's in the, the Pew survey, the peaking of the numbers of people who would object if their children were to marry people from the other party. And that's just so bizarre and so strange. Uh, that now we have this this taboo that, that I wouldn't want the other party to contaminate or pollute my family. This is very, very disturbing. It's kind of funny because for most of my life, I thought myself kind of a radical because I was in favor of like cutting way back on the government and getting rid of military commitments and ending the war on drugs and allowing gay people to marry and all of these wild ideas. And now that I'm older, I feel I'm a centrist. Uh, un, that 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 the things that I have wanted all my life under under attack from the far right and the far left populists, and what I want is a society in which people can have their differences, but they they can ultimately live together in peace. Then looking forward, one of the there's a theory out there that um, people have is that what we're seeing is a realignment right now, away from the traditional left and right as we understood it and towards populism on the one hand and cosmopolitanism of some sort on the other. But it sounds like if you think both parties are moving in a populist direction that you don't think that's the realignment that we're going to get. I'm not sure that's what's going to happen in the United States. That may be the case in some European countries where I think that that's a possible outcome. Uh, in the US, I think that uh, sad to say that uh, the Republican Party has been moving more populist, but also it looks like that's the wind is in the sails of that in the Democratic Party. We'll see. Maybe they'll put up uh, Joe Biden and he's kind of a known quantity and disagree with him on lots of things, but he's not uh, likely to burn the house down. So that might be stopped. We will see. But I think that there is so much anger in the United States, uh, anger, <laughs> resentment, rage, and hatred. And these are like the fuel of populist movements. And I, and I think really it's incumbent on libertarians to try to be the dampers, to say, let's, let's try to have a politics where we don't hate other people, where, where you and I might disagree about something, but I don't have to lust for your death. And that is unfortunately the, the kind of rhetoric that we're seeing from the left and the right in the United States today is, I want the other side to die. And ultimately, it's, it's shocking to me. It's reinforced my radical libertarian centrism. Thank you for listening. 
If you enjoy Free Thoughts, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.